and away we go. <sighs> That's not it. Which button is it? God damn it. <laughs> Can't even remember how to use my own goddamn. There we go. Although the cricket sound, that's that's appropriate. <laughs> I missed that one. <sighs> Howdy, bovine. <laughs> Donzilla Files, and welcome to another episode <laughs> of Escaping Cave. It is Tonzilla X Pod. Used to be anyway. You can get me over to escapingthecave.com. There's a Facebook page, fuck Twitter. Hi. How you been? Been a long time. This is my Second two-month break hiatus sabbatical. Which is it? I don't know. I mean, neither or. Either or. Neither or. Wasn't any of those things. I just didn't feel like podcasting. I sat down a number of times. I've said it a hundred times. Over the last year or so, this podcast has slowed down quite a bit. Goes in waves, goes in spurts, always happens. I just go through these phases... Where no matter what I have to say, whenever I come into this room, into this glorious cave, not the one from which I'm trying to escape now, but whenever I come in here, all kinds of material, all kinds of ideas, all sorts of things that are written up, ready to go. And whenever I come in here and sit down at this desk, the motivation just sort of sounds like that, coming right out. Of my ass, except I'm not sitting here. I don't know what it is. It's a lie. I know exactly what it boils down to. Last couple of months have been interesting. They really have. I uh, last did a podcast on June 19th. Uh, Today is August 18th. So it's been two months and two days since I last put together one of these audio masterpieces to disseminate to you, the listening public. In those 62 days or however long it's been, I have proceeded to lose 20 pounds. (laughs) It's directly tied to what I'm talking about. Not only have I eliminated people from Salinas, the the virtual Salinas that I like to talk about as I refer to John Steinbeck. Those of you that uh, are new to the podcast weren't listening a couple of years ago. It's a reference to Travels with Charlie. Guy decided he wanted to go home again after he was a famous author, had been gone for decades, realized you can't go home again. Life goes on without me. Well, it did. Especially for John Steinbeck, and he realized that the gulf was too big to just pick up and have things continue back the way they once were. You can't go home again. So, I've known this for a long time. I've talked about it a lot on this this particular podcast. In the last few years, probably since uh, August of 2014, during the first iteration of this, very first iteration of this podcast, a very poor iteration of it, I might add, I've slowly been moving towards what I like to call digital detox. It's taken me a long time. Two steps forward, four steps back. I spent a lot of time in my notebooks trying to figure this out. Spent a lot of time reading psychology books, ideas from other people. Andrew Sullivan was a huge help to me back in 2016. To understand the dopamine drip. To understand 
the hold that this technology, this constant connection and this constant validation stream and the quest for it to understand the hold that it has upon us. This has been a big year on that front. Started with eliminating those folks from Salinas, as I like to talk about, my hometown. Eliminated them, I think, in April. I think it was sometime in June. Not too long before this podcast ceased to be for a little while. I just shut the, the uh, Facebook profile down. I cleared everyone out of it, save 15 people that are travel contacts that I met traveling down in Latin America. It's the only people I have in there. Very few of them. They never posted anyway. <laughs> Just a way to kind of keep in touch in case, I don't know, they come to the United States or, uh, pandemic willing, we're allowed to travel internationally and we could run into each other once again. It's the only reason they're there. And then I deactivated the profile. It has been deactivated. With a couple of exceptions where I wanted to go and get stuff that I had written. Maybe go through uh, old instant messages to get ideas and content, stuff like that. But it's been deactivated and remains so to this day. I have a spare profile that has no friends. No friends are in it. And I used that to maintain the Escaping the Cave page. It became so untenable around the 4th of July that I went on a camping trip. And I was done. I couldn't stand it anymore. I just like, I don't want anything to do with swimming in this sewage of filth every single day. I don't want to do it anymore. I need a break. I need to inhale. <sighs> Fourth of July comes around. The girlfriend's family likes to take these big camping trips, week, two weeks long, every year. Right around the Fourth of July this time, I decided to attend. I left everything at home. I left the computer here. I just, I just took a few books. I took my Kindle. I took my body and my hammock and spent a wonderful four days completely disconnected. The phone wasn't even on most of the time. There's no incoming signal. No news alerts. Nothing to tell me how evil Donald Trump is or how bad the socialist hordes are becoming here in America. None of that. Just organic, face-to-face conversations with actual living, breathing human beings as opposed to these digital avatars that we have become. My girlfriend's father and I used to not be able to talk politics. He's a rabid conservative. Fundamentalist Christian, that kind of guy. Very strong beliefs. His beliefs and my beliefs were oil and water once upon a time. In many ways, these opinions, these opinions still are oil and water. However, I took a different track when I went on this camping trip back at the beginning of July. I wanted to see if I could cut through it. I wanted to see if I could find some commonality. Some human connection. An actual conversation. Based on the last podcast that I put out, essentially saying conversation is dead and we're all just waiting to talk over one another, I wanted to see if it was possible to sit down, 
with an individual human being and intentionally try to have an interactive back and forth, a give and take conversation. And lo and behold, hallelujah, alas, it manifested itself. There was nobody listening. He and I, sitting in these camping chairs at a state park on Lake Michigan, with no one else within 15 feet of us, just he and I talking. I planted the seed early on in the chat, one of the first chats we had of, of several over that weekend. You know, you ever notice how people just talk over each other, don't let each other finish their sentences? You ever notice that, Mike? To plant the seed, to tell him, hey, listen, I know you're passionate. I know you have these beliefs. We're not online now. We're having an interactive verbal conversation where you have to let the other person finish what they're saying. I've done this. I understand. It's all in that podcast. I understand my own crime here in the past. Once I did that and was mindful of it in myself and was actually trying to listen to the words and the ideas that he was trying to put forth, and not just rejecting them out of hand because they come from a heretical congregation, we began to be able to find a little common ground. Once each of us were off the pulpit, the competing pulpit, we were able to have an interactive conversation, and we did. Again, we did find common ground. I attribute this to the fact that there was nobody listening and that we were paying attention to the things that were coming out of each other's mouths and, and, significantly, listening. Listening to the thoughts and the ideas without taking the role of the retained attorney whose job it is to defend one side or the other. It's one of the points, one of the the brightest points of the conversation we had. I said something to him like, you know what? Everybody's become a retained attorney in this country. Everybody. A pro bono hack, hack, hack retained attorney. The thing about attorneys is they do not seek the truth. Sorry, counselor, you don't. You are not in search of the truth. When you go into a courtroom to argue, you are defending a position. A position you have been retained presumably paid, to argue. You're not in search of the truth. You're trying to win an argument. Rhetorical fuckery. Verbal voodoo. It is not a quest for the truth, counselor, that you're on. And that's what we've become. Collectively, as a a country, probably as a species, And I think it has everything to do. Not quite everything. I think it has a lot to do. Let's let's pick an arbitrary number, 85% to do with this new technology that we have that has given us the illusion, the illusion of democratized opinion, that all opinions are equal. All opinions are my opinions just as valid as yours. My ignorance is just as valid as your expertise because I have an opinion to fuck you. 
I hate to say that right off the bat. Now, not all opinions are created equal. Depending on how long this episode goes, how long this piece goes, I'm going to do one of two things. Just decided, just now, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to tag this with edited parts of an episode I released last year on democratized opinion, or I may just re-release it as a follow-up episode to this one. One of the problems that we have is this notion of direct democracy, of mob slash majority rule. I mentioned Henrik Ibsen. He's an old uh, playwright, 19th century. He wrote An Enemy of the People. I read that thing, tore through it when I got the book in the mail a couple of months back. (laughs) I'm sitting on the couch the other day, getting ready to go out and ride my bike waiting for the food to digest and uh, flip it over to TCM, and I see, oh, my God, an enemy of the people's on. I didn't know it was a damn movie. Sure enough, made in the 1970s, starring Steve McQueen as Dr. Stockman. The crux of that movie, the crux of that play, is that the majority isn't always right. Might doesn't (laughs) make right. In fact, most of the time, It's the minority, someone who's in the minority that has chosen to go against orthodoxy and common public opinion. My opinion is the world is flat. That's that's what everybody was saying a few hundred years back till somebody decided to postulate courageously in public. Uh, 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 No, the world is round. Was it Copernicus said that we were not in the center of the universe or in the center of the solar system? Was it Copernicus? Whatever. Hey, it was Galileo. Whatever. They're always in the minority at some point. And it takes a really long time, a really long time for public opinion to catch up with truth. Another case in point, another example, the existence of Sky Daddy. If you take a poll of people in this country, how many people believe there is Sky Daddy and the zombie messiah waiting to uh, take us up in their arms and take us home as long as we behave on this planet until the day we die. If you were to poll people what their opinion on the matter is, most people would say, yes, I believe there is a God. Does that make him right? Is public opinion the arbiter of truth? That was the point of uh, Ibsen's play, Enemy of the People, and what it takes, the courage it takes, and the storm one has to endure to stand up in the right in the face of a very, very wrong public opinion. And that's the notion of direct democracy, that the mob is always right. That just because you have superior numbers... You have truth on your side. I've had a number of reading obsessions the last couple of months. Oh, yes. They're really interested. I I started to move away from Lippmann, uh, Mencken a little bit, Bernays and all this propaganda stuff from the early uh, 20th century. I decided, you know what? I'm seeing a lot of of these ideas from around the revolution about uh, the tyranny of the mob. John Stuart Mill, still in the back of my mind from last year. I started to read a little bit more about George Washington. So I decided I'd buy a 700-page bio on him by Ron Chernow. 
I got the one on Alexander Hamilton as well. The point is I wanted to find out for myself. I wanted to get a foundation, a historical context of the Founding Fathers and their view on democracy. And it has become crystal clear to me that the Founding Fathers, the majority of them, the ones whose worldview won, the Federalists, they were terrified, they were more terrified of direct democracy becoming mob rule and factionalism, competing, mutually exclusive, destructive factionalism, a factionalism that would eventually tear the country to shreds, opening the door for a dictator or a demagogue. George Washington specifically was more afraid of a weak federal government and competing mobs making life so untenable that it would open the door for a demagogue. His experience as, as you know, the commander-in-chief during the revolution showed him this. The federal government was so weak, they had no enforcement mechanism in place to force these colonies to help pay for the rebellion. His troops were not getting paid because the states refused to contribute to the federal treasury. So this Continental Army could feed itself. One of the biggest challenges he faced was that of public opinion because his troops were starving, especially in the wintertime. Remember all the stories about Valley Forge? We've all heard that growing up, right? Why were they starving? (laughs) They weren't being paid. They weren't being fed. So what did they do? Countless numbers of his troops went into the countryside and started taking food from residents. Stealing from the country and the people that they were trying to, quote-unquote, liberate from the English. Not good for keeping the public on your side. All because Congress was too weak to enforce any kind of taxation to support the army. Another thing he hated was militias. He despised everything about militias. He wanted a standing army. He wanted a paid professional army, an army paid by the federal government because state militias are notoriously unreliable. Short enlistment terms. I think he had people signing up for a year at a time. So every year, I don't know, somebody from Vermont or New Hampshire would come. A whole group of people, hey, we just signed up. Woo! Great. Well, there's a 1,000 there. You got 1,500 over here who are leaving. Their term is up. They're not getting paid. They're not being fed. They can't support their families. What's happening up there in Montpelier to their families? He fought that every year. He was afraid that rather than the British, the thing that would defeat his army was the militia structure. And having to recruit a new army every single year and having an ineffectual centralized government that could be relied upon to pay him. George Washington, big fan of the standing army. As he moved out of the war and uh, towards his presidency, 
the final nail in that sort of philosophical coffin was Shays' Rebellion. I'm sure most of you have probably heard of that. I had. Wasn't really sure what it was up until a couple of years ago, about three years ago, when I moved to Massachusetts. And a girlfriend and I moved to a little town called Pelham. That's where we landed once we left Chicago and got to Massachusetts. We lived in Pelham. Well, Pelham <laughs> was Daniel Shays' uh, hometown. He moved there from, uh, I think, around Boston or something like that at some point after the Revolution. Uh, we lived on Daniel Shays' Highway. I think that's uh, Route 202. goes right by Quabbin Reservoir. His farm was where the reservoir sits now. Anyway, Daniel Shays was a revolutionary veteran. He uh, went back home after the war and still hadn't been paid. Still had not been paid for his service to his revolutionary army. I know the territory there. It's rocky, hard to grow crops. He had a really hard time making a living. A lot of people had a really hard time making a living. Economic problems. It led to this uh, revolt of sorts. Because the government, the federal government, the central government, wouldn't work with these farmers. Collecting debts, things like that, debt forgiveness, debt delay, however you want to look at it. The fact that the government was neither cooperating with nor helping these people led them toward agrarian reform demands. This is before the time of Marx, but this is socialism. Public land. The land owned by the people collectively. Socialism. The S word that a lot of you folks hate so much. George Washington saw this and it reinforced his idea that the biggest threat of a demagogue or tyranny or a dictatorship in this country was a weak and ineffectual central government that could not be counted upon in a crisis. Shay's Rebellion sort of uh, petered out. wasn't that big of a deal. Daniel Shays was an officer in the Revolution, so, you know, he could speak. He was a charismatic guy. He was sort of recruited to lead this, quote-unquote, rebellion. Now, Pelham is right next to Amherst in western Massachusetts, which I think is northeast, a little northeast of Springfield, Massachusetts, where there was an armory. And I think federal or state troops, I can't remember if it was federal or Massachusetts troops, were there protecting it. And Shays decided he was going to march on it. I think he got screwed over by another commander who was supposed to join the assault upon the armory, who didn't show up. (laughs) He wound up being repelled and chased back up toward Pelham to a town called, I think it was Shootsbury, where the federal or state troops caught up with him, basically crushed it. He escaped. I think he got off into uh, Vermont or New Hampshire. And he lived up there on the run for a number of years until he was pardoned later on. But that's the weak, ineffectual, ineffectual central government that led to this sort of socialist agrarian uprising and this rebellion. Washington watched this, watched it happen, heard reports of it from uh, Mount Vernon, his home on the Potomac. And this solidified in his mind that the Articles of Confederation were too weak, that this country would rip itself to self-interested shreds unless a stronger, centralized federal government that could handle itself. 
during a crisis and had the authority to knock these states back in line when they got a little too uppity and full of themselves to the detriment of the rest of the union. That's how we got the Constitution that y'all love so much. It's an interesting story. I don't have a, I, I wouldn't say that I've got a scholar's background on Shays' Rebellion. I got a couple of books coming. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So I wanted to go back and I wanted to get a little context about what the founders thought, what their ideas were about both the federal government, the central government, the militias, and the foundations behind why they chose us to be a republic instead of a direct democracy. They were terrified, terrified of mob rule, which is what direct democracy is. They say as much. They have said as much. They have literally said it. The tyranny of the 50.1%, who essentially want to exterminate the other 49.9. We've seen that with the attacks on the Electoral College. We'll probably have more on this at some point. But California, all those liberals out in California are up in arms over the Electoral College because they think that their numbers are sufficient to warrant electorally exterminating Montana. Montana shouldn't have a say because there's more of us. They shouldn't be able to influence the election at all because we're in the majority. And we're right because, because what we think is right because there's more of us. No. Doesn't work that way. I encourage all of you, each and every one of you, if you have cable, <laughs> who doesn't have cable these days? Get over to TCM. If you have the on-demand thing, it's on there. Go watch Enemy of the People. It's fantastic. And it's 19th century stuff. The play is better, but knowing attention spans these days, I'm not going to expect you to sit down and read a play for two hours. But it's absolutely fantastic. People suck, and that's my contention. I can prove it on scratch paper and a pen. Give me a fucking Etch-A-Sketch. I'll do it in three minutes. The proof, the fact, the factorum. I'll show my work. Case closed. I'm tired of this backslapping, aren't humanity neat bullshit. We're a virus with shoes, okay? That's all we are. You know, one of the things that I have been mulling around in my head the last few days... This thing called the humanovirus. I've used that cute little term several times on this show. And uh, this was a topic, though. A sort of an expanding topic that was triggered by beginning uh, Harari's Homo Deus. The follow-up to Sapiens. So far, an excellent book. Haven't finished it yet. Sounds great. Anyway, <laughs> it, it occurred to me. Starting to read this. Starting to kind of think back. I, I, I pulled out Sapiens a little bit. Then he does this uh, brief history of humankind, I think is the subtext or subtitle of the book, where he kind of recounts human history, but really, 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 really fast. And taking all these combinations, all these things that I've seen, all these things that I've sort of read, the, the context, the wider but generalized context of history, it occurred to me that this, is, that this species to which we belong, it's an invasive species. 
We take what we want. Conquest of quote-unquote savages is in our blood. Savages being defined as anyone who doesn't think, pray, act, or believe like they should. How we, in our moral certitude, judge that they should behave or how they should think, how they should worship, what they should believe. That's what makes them heathens, makes them subhuman, the tribal others. They are not to be just left alone to live as they see fit. Now, we treat them the way mankind has always treated competing or inconvenient tribes inhabiting whatever space we personally desire for our own. As an obstacle to be cleared, there's a quote I'm going to dig up at some point. It's exterminate the brutes. I think it's in Heart of Darkness. Apply that to Harari's observation about masks, and you could apply that to uh, Harari's observations in Sapiens about mass extinction events, how they've always followed the species as it sort of spread around the globe like a virus, as it's done for millennia. Humans move into Australia. These gigantic beasts that have been living and evolving, isolated away from human beings, as soon as the humanovirus arrived on the continent, they vanished. A lot of people want to attribute all this to climate change, waves of climate change. Maybe it had some to do with it, but you know what? They were helped out an awful lot by human beings coming in and killing them, destroying their habitat. We move in and eradicate whatever is in our way. Invasive species. You start looking at it through this wide-angle lens, it paints a very, very, unflattering character sketch of we sapiens. Now, we human beings, and this continues today, ideology, political religions, has changed the moralistic and self-righteous focus, redefined what constitutes a savage. The blueprint remains the same. Convert or exterminate or push them out, out onto the reservations. Until that's unacceptable, as we've seen throughout history, the religion is always the litmus test. Catholics exterminated savages throughout Latin America when they refused to submit to their righteous, godly will. Our own colonists eradicated what they saw as an infestation on their land once they gained foothold in New England. What defines an infestation? A subhuman species refusing to think, worship, and quote-unquote civilize itself to your, our, standards. The contemporary parallels are obvious. This is the trend of things today. Personally, I still see woke fanaticism as that new invasive species looking to eradicate the natives, the savages, the people who are already here. And it is Invasive. It wasn't hatched here. Wokeism wasn't an American product. It's in many ways the antithesis to the established founding myth and cohesive imagined order that's been in place for a few hundred years. It seeks to displace or <clears throat> revolutionize. That's my focus right now. Yet, I know it's incomplete. Woefully incomplete. 
completely ignores the existential photonegative threat, the orange goblin that's been infesting the White House and public discourse for nearly four years now. QAnon people, QAnon people, conspiracy theorists are now being elected to office as Republicans. The anti-science, anti-intellectualism that's taken root as technology. Overwhelmed data processing centers of individuals and obliterated any collective sense of shared reality is building mutually exclusive camps of intellectual matter and antimatter. The old notion of competing informational parallel universes, the sky is different colors to these enemy fanatics. I was talking earlier, and I've talked a lot about democratized opinion. Again, my ignorance is equal to their expertise. It's intellectual populism. The tyranny of thoughtless opinion. Literally thoughtless opinion. Adopted, recycled, hijacked, kidnapped opinion. You've taken the opinion from someone else. Someone else who's handed it to you. Propaganda, allul, blah, blah, blah. Go back a year, listen to that stuff. You want more of it. It's thoughtless opinion, opinions that were not reached by thought. They were copycatted. There's an H.L. Mencken quote that I love. Paraphrase here. Most men live their entire lives without an organic and original thought. It fits in here somewhere. And I understand these are several diffuse thoughts that are all connected, and I'll get to it eventually, the connecting tissue. But... For today, as I try to get back into the flow of this democratized opinion unleashed by this democratizing technology, has unleashed a demand for actual direct democracy, which is the tyranny of the mob. Mob rule. The belief that might makes right and is determined by just one more vote in a country of 330 million people. That 166 million have the tyrannical right to subjugate 164 million to their collective will. The disenfranchisement of a bare minority. The Electoral College has been under scrutiny and attack since Bush v. Gore, particularly now. When it comes to having a voice, California liberals, as I said earlier, would love to democratically exterminate Montana conservatives. And if the shoe were on the other foot, you're absolutely right, hippies. Conservatives would do the same thing. Touch on it again, the more I read about Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, and others to come, the clearer it becomes that our ancestors knew the power of the mob beast that they themselves rode to revolutionary glory. The danger of factions. It's what they feared about direct democracy was mob versus mob and why they built a constitutional republic after Shays' Rebellion. There needs to be a strong authoritative central government to prevent rampant factionalism from ripping the nation apart. Not one based on trendy, quote-unquote, public opinion. That's the foundation behind Ibsen's play. But one based on solidly established principles on which we can depend, lean upon. In times of turmoil, a beacon in the fog of war, so to speak. Even in 2000, 20 years ago, we had some semblance of that. 
2000 election was historic, and it did change things. 9-11 on its heels exacerbated things because the contested and controversial election had a possibly different outcome. Had a possibility of that, but Al Gore conceded the election. He conceded despite having a rightful Florida grievance. He conceded the election to maintain the public's faith in our fundamental democratic institution, the vote. The consequences of that reverberated throughout the next decade or two. Iraq, Afghanistan, the Patriot Act, Homeland Security Department, WMD, all that stuff. All of it probably looks much different with President Gore. But... Even so, he did the country a service by not causing the country to question the legitimacy of its most basic institution. Those days are over. With this new constant connectivity and the ridiculous power of democratized thoughtless opinion, both Trump and Biden have thrown all of that out the window. Yes, both of them. The pandemic has thrown napalm on the fire. Mail-in voting is all the rage of people largely afraid to congregate, go to the polls. Makes a lot of sense, right? Mail your vote in. It's a great idea. It would lead to higher participation, which is something Republicans obviously do not want, and they haven't for a long time. Why is that? Conservative people... I know I got a lot of you now. I, I would imagine that the most majority of you, at least lean conservative at this point, I think I've pushed most of the woke flakes off into the Red Sea by now. But why is that? Why is it Republicans are always trying to shrink the vote? Of course, here come the uh, howls of voter fraud in the context of mail-in voting from Donald Trump. We may never know who won. He tweeted that last week. Tweeted it. Of course he tweeted it via an unaccountable social media platform because, yes, on on Twitter, all opinions are equal, (laughs) even those with a propagandist intent. And Trump began this assault on election confidence when he thought he'd lose back in 2016. He's reprising a role, the same role he played four years ago. And then, and then, even after he won the damn thing, He continued, continued to question the veracity of the vote total as it pertained to the meaningless popular vote. You won, jackass. Shut up. I got more votes. What is it? It's only fraud when your team loses, apparently. Is that how this works? It's only fraud when it goes against you? Huh? Now, not to be outdone, Joe Biden has run that same flag up the pole. Saying Trump's going to try to steal the election this year. He said that multiple times this year. Now, combined with obvious foreign interference via Facebook, Twitter, and whatever else, the veracity of the outcome, the belief and trust in the results have been eroded to the point where it's only quote-unquote fair if your team won. So no matter who wins the election this year, the other team, the other side, the other religion, the other fanatical cult is going to scream, you cheated. Of course, all this is fueled by this new phenomenon 
of democratized information of choice and its incestuous cousin, insulated and democratized opinion. Thoughtless opinion, homogenous mob think, the herd mentality masquerading as public opinion. Mail-in voting is no different now than absentee voting has been. We've been doing it forever. It's the same damn thing. (laughs) But this time, play the devil's advocate. It is being announced as a primary way to vote thanks to the pandemic. That does give bad actors an opportunity to interfere in this election, doesn't it? If you know it's coming, if you know a significant portion of the population is going to mail their votes in and say you're Putin, say you're China, doesn't that give you an opportunity yourself to prepare, to tinker with people's trust in their fundamental and primary democratic institution? And you don't even have to alter the vote. All you have to do is destroy confidence in the process. After what I've seen for the last three or four years, I would not put it past someone in Trump's circle to do something to make it appear like there's fraud or interference just to taint the results in the event that he loses. Tinfoil haddish? (laughs) You thought it was tinfoil haddish to say that Trump was intentionally suppressing coronavirus testing because he didn't want high numbers. Well, I'm looking pretty good on that front these days, aren't I? So what happens then? You create some event that makes it appear like the results are tainted in the event of a Trump loss. What happens? Well, behold the holy shit show. And let's say he wins again. Let's just say Trump, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I know a lot of you folks are thinking, oh, it's over now. Woo, we got him. I got a clip I should play for you. <laughs> it's from about a year ago when you went down the impeachment road. We got him this time. And I was like, you need to wait. You need to wait on this. You haven't got him yet. And a lot of you taking that attitude down. We got him this time. He's so far ahead in the polls, he can't lose. <laughs> it's August. It feels like Groundhog Day in a lot of ways. I digress. If he wins, and it's close, and it will be, Trump victory is going to be a close victory. That's for sure. Biden's already said Trump's going to try to steal it. Even in the event of of a Trump victory, behold the holy shit show. Either way. 2020 is going to go down as the year that changed everything. Not for the better. This election, as I have been saying for a long time, it really, I don't think it matters. I think we're so polarized and so divided. We hate each other so much. And we distrust each other so much. It reminds me of the, the major, of major League Baseball, the union and the owners, they do not trust each other. They do not like each other. They hate each other. They cannot come to a consensus. They cannot agree upon anything. So they always have these damn work stoppages. Another one's coming in a little over a year. I almost promise you that. That's the attitude we have with each other now. This American family is dysfunctional. It hates each other. We've broken off into bands. 
fractured and tribalized. And do you think that this election is going to fix any of that? Yay, my team won. Behold the holy shit show. Either way you go. Things just get worse in December. Things just get worse. Whoever is either still in office or takes office next January. It's going to keep getting worse. You know, Walter Lippmann, I moved down from him a little bit, not really obsessed with him, but I've got a couple of things here written down that I found over the last couple of months that apply to what I've been talking about today. The first is about the majority and the minority. He wrote this in 1928, and it's interesting because of where it goes. He says, it is the minority which needs protection, even though that minority may consist of persons who, if they had the power, would destroy the liberty which, as a minority, they invoke. He said, we are prepared to defend the legal right of anyone to say anything he chooses, short of actual incitement to a breach of law. Then a few years later, in the mid-1930s, Remember, that's 1928. Things are good then. Things are good. 1928, now in the mid-30s, height of the Depression. You know, the the smells of war are starting to build in Europe. Socialist uh, upheaval here in response to the uh, Depression. Radicalism. Then he says, free nation can tolerate feeble communists and fascist societies as long as it is certain that they have no hope of success. But once they cease to be debating societies, they present a challenge which is suicidal to ignore. It is a betrayal of liberty not to defend it with all the power that free men possess. Circumstances changing his perspective over the course of about seven years. Here's a couple other quotes from him. That really tie into a lot of the things that I've been talking about today. These are from Lippmann again. He says, A democracy which fails to concentrate authority in an emergency inevitably falls into such confusion that the ground is prepared for the rise of a dictator. The ineffectual, ineffectual, useless, gutted. Central government prepares the ground for the rise of a dictator. Same thing that George Washington and I think Hamilton were talking about in the 18th century. He's talking about the radical demagogue Huey Long here. Must men acquiesce in the overthrow of democracy if the dictator can obtain the support of the majority of voters? He's asking a question here. Must free men acquiesce to that? Does majority rule legitimize the rise of a dictator? If the majority support it, ask Adolf Hitler. He was voted in. He didn't just seize power. He won elections to get to where he was, and then he consolidated. And finally, this is the, uh, the big one. Free institutions are not the property of any majority. They do not confer upon majorities unlimited powers. The rights of the majority are limited rights. They are limited not only by the constitutional guarantees, but by the moral principle implied in these guarantees. That principle is that man may not use the facilities of liberty to impair them. No man may invoke a right in order to destroy it. The right of free speech belongs to those who are willing to preserve it. The right to elect belongs to those who mean to transmit that right to their successors, Mr. Trump. 
The rule of the majority is morally justified only if another majority is free to reverse that role, Wokeflake. To hold any other views than this is to believe that democracy alone of all forms of government is prohibited by its own principles from ensuring its own preservation. We have moved past the point where peaceful transitions of power are going to be relied upon. We may have seen the last one with Donald Trump when he took office in 2016 because I don't see, unless this is a a complete and total unquestionable blowout electorally and one that can be reasonably trusted without indications of tampering, fraud, real or otherwise, we have seen the last peaceful transition of power in this country. Any other close elections, and pretty much all of them are going to be, as divided down the middle as we are. Any other transition of power is going to be contested both governmentally, institutionally, and publicly. No one will believe the other side didn't cheat. And they'll believe in their righteousness, their self-certitude, their moral certitude. Their moral fanaticism that they are fighting on the side of God's righteousness, the ideological God. (laughs) Behold the holy shit show that's about to dawn once we finally get through this election. One other thing I wanted to point out as far as the election goes is something that uh, Harari wrote again, and he was talking about uh, terrorism, why terrorism works and how it works, how a weaker opponent uses those tactics to their advantage. And in his view, it's to encourage the other side, the enemy, the much more powerful enemy, to overreact. So, he used the example of 9-11 and how Al-Qaeda, with their attacks on the Trade Center, provoked this country into an overreaction. Iraq. The obliteration of the Iraqi government in re- out of revenge creating this vacuum in which Al-Qaeda and eventually the Islamic State could take advantage of the vacuum to their own benefit. Imagine this. Think of this in the context of the election. All you have to do is give the illusion of impropriety and the population, the public, the government is sure to overreact. We're primed for it. There goes the last DJ Who plays what he wants to play And says what he wants to say Hey, hey, hey And there goes your freedom of choice There goes the last 
All right, as I wrap this bad boy up, I wanted to get back to the digital detox stuff just a little bit because I think I kind of cut that short as I veered off into uh, other things today. But it went exceedingly well. As I said, I started uh, this workout regimen. I was getting rid of this unsightly, uh, you know, pandemic and winter blubber that I'd accumulated and had wound up losing close to 20 pounds the last couple months just by being outside. Uh, running, walking, hiking, biking, distance biking, all sorts of other things that I used to be able to do. And a lot of that was helped. I, I had a problem with my foot, right? I had this nerve problem that I later figured out was Morton's neuroma that I probably gave myself by wearing boots and shoes that were way too tight and carrying a huge-ass 40, 50-pound backpack a lot of the time. And I hadn't been able to figure out what it was, and whenever I would do anything longer than maybe a mile, the, the left side of my left foot would feel like it was just setting itself on fire and then go numb, and I'd have to stop. My last hitchhiking trip kind of, you know, worked to debilitate me a little bit, and it's progressively gotten a little bit worse. Well, anyway, I figured out a workaround for that, found a metatarsal insert, and realized I had to get wider shoes and, you know, dick around with the lacings a little bit, and I haven't felt anything. So I feel like a new man. Also gave up coffee in favor of tea a few months ago. That's done a lot, cutting my, my caffeine intake down to nil. And so physically, I feel like I've been released from prison, <laughs> right? And it came along at just the same time that I'm, you know what, I need to I need to get out of this digital realm. I need to get out of the sewer. I need to quit dwelling on all of this negativity, all of this this terrible shit that this podcast and my focus of interest, really, is keeping me in every single day. I need some balance. So, this all started, I think, before the last podcast. And after the last podcast, I figured out that I enjoyed getting outside again. I enjoyed running. I liked watching the weight just fall off of me. I liked watching daily progress watching my own physical fitness and the progress of being able to run a little bit further, being able to shoot up these steep hills I have in the nature preserve back here, being able to ride, get on a bike, and actually start tinkering around with the trails back there and then start to actually attack them mountain bike style. Learning my way around back there. It's a really, it's a, it's a very confusing net, uh, maze of trails. Easy to get lost back there. Uh, my girlfriend and her parents did get lost back there a few months ago. So I'd go out, look at it like a, like a I don't know, just a, an active adventure to try to find my way and learn these trails. I know I'm like the back of my hand now. Anyway, the point is, is that I was making progress. It was something that I could get up and do out in the real world, put my headphones on, and just go out and attack it. And then I would see results every single day. It's been phenomenal. I look completely different than I did the last time we chatted. I know you can't see me. Just trust me on that, okay? And that became an obsession. It became something that was positive. A positive outcome that could be measured. I was getting something out of what I was doing. And I've continued to do it. And whenever I would come in here, it would take time away from doing that. So I was sacrificing the positivity that I was getting from this to come in and do this. To jump back in the sewage again. 
to swim around in our own collective feces. Ooh, sounds like fun. There's also some other things that, uh, experiments that I was doing. Once I got rid of the profile, once I stopped posting everything to the uh, Facebook page, I started to tinker around with my the effects it was having on me. Because no, no incoming signals, that's great, but now there were no outgoing signals either. Right? The dopamine drip severed. And I realized that once that happened, once that occurred, I had to ask myself, why am I doing this? Why would I sit down at the microphone and, and put all the stuff out, go through all of the work to do this without having to rely upon the performer's twitch, the need for some kind of validation? Yeah, go ahead and roll your eyes at me. Oh, yeah, I can't believe you. Every one of you who are still on social media and still post incessantly, that's what you're feeding. You're not posting it for the betterment of mankind. You're posting it to entertain your fans so they validate you, so they give you likes. That's what you get off on. This is not abstract theory. I could play a clip for you. And maybe I will. Maybe I'll insert it in the editing process. But it's Drew Michael, the Chicago comedian that I know of. He did a piece on it. He says he goes on stage and he's getting something out of it. Yeah, you feel connected to me, he says to his audience. But I'm getting the validation. I'm getting the satisfaction. And he admits that is some kind of addiction. I've heard this from other performers across the spectrum. That's why people get on stage and tap dance for you. It's because they're getting something out of it beyond the creative and artistic process. And it's funny to me because I, you know, I do stand-up, and a lot of times stand-up gets associated with bravery. Like, oh, you get up on stage. That's so brave. Like, I can never. It's so brave. And I get why people say that because of fear of public speaking, but I'm not a brave dude. Like, th- I get something out of this too. There's a validation that I get that I need to rise to a minimum level of self-acceptance. That's not brave. That's like addiction. That's like codependence. It's like seeing a crackhead on the street sucking a dick. Like, wow, he's so brave. Like, I don't know if that's... It's risky. I don't know if it's brave. Something else. And the reason this isn't brave is for a a number of reasons. Is One, I know what I'm going to say. That's not really vulnerable to know what the fuck, like it's written, like I wrote this shit. This whole bravery bit, I wrote it. I'm just saying to you right now the words that I wrote somewhere on a notebook, somewhere. Even this part now, I'm like, oh, I wrote it. Yeah, I wrote that too. Like it's all part, it's all part of the same, it's the same illusion. And I, and I know what it's like to be on the other side. Like I've been on the other side, right? I used to watch stand-up, I used to watch stand-up on TV, and, I, and I, that's what it got me into it, because people would say some shit that I could relate to, I was like, and I felt connected to them, and I was like, oh my God, if I feel this connected to that person, imagine how, much, how connected they must feel to everybody. So if I could just get to the other side, I would feel that from everyone else. And so I got here, and I'm so alone. Like, it's like, <laughs> more so than I was. Like, that's the thing. It's, you, I, you're not connected with me. I'm giving you some ideas and some thoughts and material and whatever, and that's yours to keep. That's yours to have. You could take it. You could forget about it. You could like it. You could hate it. It's yours, but that's not me. You can't confuse that with, with who, who I am, you know, and that's the thing is, you know, I, I, 
this is a, it's a barrier. Even, the, even the finding the funny in something is a barrier against the emotion behind the idea, right? Like, I don't want to necessarily always find the funny angle in everything when it prevents me from dealing with it, if that makes sense. Like, I don't want to write a bit about loneliness if, I, if it means I have to feel alone. Like, I don't want to write a rant about love in the abstract without knowing what it is from the inside. Because I think love is the bravest thing a person can do. Like, that is, like, truly, like, to, to let your guard down and let somebody see you and you see them, you accept their flaws, you orbit that very center of love together, knowing best-case scenario, one of you is going to watch the other one die. Not trying to bum anyone out, but that's fucking brave as shit. They tell you at the wedding, they're like, this ends in death. And you're like, yep. It's like, what the fuck? How? How do you do that? You accept your mortality and then eat cake? Like, that's crazy. I can't... I can't do that. I can't handle that level of intimacy. That's why I do this. That's why I can't call this brave because this is me running from that shit. This is me establishing the same dynamic I established in a relationship. Right here, this show is, the, the, is my ideal relationship. How does it work? I come out here, I say whatever the fuck I wanna say, you're not allowed to talk. <laughs> we share an intense moment together, I get what I need, and then I leave. You guys have been phenomenal. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Drew Michael. Take care of your way, staff. Get home safe. Good night. Thank you. They want the validation. They need it. A lot of them need it. And when they don't get it and when they cannot satisfy it, because you need more, you need more, you need more. Once you get it, the thrill goes away almost immediately and you have to have more. And if you can't get more, you become depressed, you become miserable. And that leads a lot of performers to kill themselves or get addicted to some kind of drug as a substitute for the twitch that they just can't itch. But I ask myself, if I'm not going to do this, if I'm not going to post anything, and I'm not going to sit here and throw all this crap onto Facebook and into social media, and the only validation that I'm going to get is from my download numbers, which after not doing anything for two months are going to be in the shitter. Why, pray tell, am I doing this? Matt, yeah, yeah, I, I think he's the only guy that I'm really <laughs> in touch with since I left social media. He messaged me the other day. He's like, where are you at, fucker? He was drunk. And he was essentially begging me to do another podcast. Not being hyperbolic, he pretty much was. Trying to talk me into coming back. And I got to say, he's pretty much the reason that I'm doing this. And I asked him that question. I'm like, why am I doing this? If you take the ego out of it, if you take the validation out of it, the feeling of overblown significance, of contributing to the discourse and the conversation, <laughs> if you take all that out of it, why am I doing this? What is the point? I don't hold any illusions that I'm going to make a difference here. I am not going to change the course or the degree of self-analysis and insight, self-reflection that people en masse are engaging in. 
I am not going to be able to force you to look into your own dirty mirror. And I dare say, even the material that I have already put out, the stuff that I'm putting out today, is counterproductive to building a following. Especially today in this environment, in this boutique informational ecosystem in which we live. If people, if if you don't tell people what they want to hear, they have countless infinite choices of places to go to get it. I don't make you feel good. I don't give you hope. I don't put you up on some divine pedestal of human greatness. I'm pointing out your flaws. I am pointing out our flaws. I'm pointing out my own flaws while I'm at it. And that does not make people feel good. Doesn't make you feel all warm and fuzzy. Why do I want to listen to a podcast that calls me, I don't know, stupid? Calls me ignorant. Says that I'm deluding myself. Why should I listen to that? I want to listen to guys we fucked. Oh, go ahead. But before you go, please answer me this question. Why the hell am I doing this? What is the point? I haven't stuck my head in the sand. I'm paying as much as close attention to everything that's going on as I ever have. I have a stack of books. I swear to God, I can take a picture of Maybe I will. Maybe I'll post it to the page. I got a stack of 15, 20 books sitting on my nightstand, and I'm going and picking through each and every single one of them. I'm getting a clearer picture of everything that's happening right now. It's becoming almost... High definition. And whenever I turn on programs like Bill Maher, I saw him two weeks ago, basically plagiarizing me. I know he didn't get it from me, but he's saying shit that I was saying two years ago. He's using avatars constantly. He's calling these social media characters avatars. I was doing that two years. It's mine. Hello. (laughs) I didn't get it from anybody. It came from my own goddamn brain. Oh, maybe it's not that original of an idea, but maybe, you know, it's just that obvious. And again, I'm not saying Bill Maher is ripping me off. I'm not saying he's stealing my material. Now, Barry Weiss also came out and said some things that sounded awfully familiar to me. And so, and so there was some other guy on that episode. I forget his name. Him too. Then I go listen to Your Undivided Attention, a great podcast. It is my favorite podcast, which is not saying much. That's the only other one I listen to. I don't like podcasters. I really don't. I don't like other podcasts. I think I've pretty much <laughs> laid that out for you in, in fits and starts along the way. But I'm listening to this podcast, and they get, they get these people on who are very insightful. They have great information, great ideas, but they're coming from this place where they think that tech can possibly save us, that Facebook can amend or mutate itself into some constructive organism. What they do not ask, the question that they refuse to ask The fallacy, it begs the question, what if people don't want that change? What if people do not want to self-examine their own need, addiction, and want for disinformation, propaganda, or anything that puts them at the center of the universe? What if the foundational problem, the crux, the core of the problem, is not our technology, but us? And how the technology affects us us, what it does to us. That's the question that needs to be asked, and nobody is asking it because you 
refuse to sit and listen to it. You don't want to hear that. You want to hear how it's everybody else's fault. How the barbarians, the hordes, the savages that I was talking about earlier, how they are the ones to blame. And you, on the other hand, you and your righteous cause and your moral certitude, your self-righteousness, you are on the side of right. That's what you want to hear. And there are innumerable places for you to hear that. So why am I doing this? That's the question that I have been asking myself for two months. Every time I sit down and try to take some of the ideas that I've written, some of the ideas that I've come up with in private, in my own journals, my own notebooks, in the margins of my books, whenever I try to extract that and say, here, I'm like, wait a minute, why the hell am I jerking off for Helen Keller? She can't see me anyway. This old idea I had, you veterans of the podcast and my other material are sick and tired of hearing about Andre by now, but I don't really care. <laughs> he, was, he was very instructive. And I came up with something called the Dennis Doctrine after I met him. <sighs> He's the guy, the, the guy who was blown up in an oil well, gave me my very first hitchhiking ride, and I found out a year later he had uh, killed a few cops and then himself. He could not be helped. He could not help himself. He refused or was incapable of helping himself. I have this thing called the Dennis Doctrine based on that, that if someone refuses to help themselves or is incapable of helping themselves, you have a choice to make. Using the hitchhiking analogy and metaphor, imagery, You have a choice. You can either sit in the ditch with him, trying to pick him up, trying to get him to stand on his own two feet and to walk, or you can try to pick him up and carry him and carry him, but you're not strong enough. You can't possibly do that for very far. You're going to fall in the ditch with him, and you're going to lie there with him. You're going to go nowhere with him. You have a choice to make. You try. You do the best you can, but you cannot make another person use their legs. You cannot make another person help themselves. At some point, if you're a rational human being who doesn't suffer from Chris's Messiah complex, you say, well, I tried. I wish you the best. Um, You need anything? I got a cliff bar. Would you like a Gatorade? Okay, good luck to you. Sorry I couldn't be a more help. Actually, uh, I'm sorry, you couldn't be a more help to yourself. Bye. That's rational. And that's where I feel like I am. With all this stuff. I have never been more certain. I, there may, I'm, I'm missing details here and there. You know, there's this quote from Lawrence Olivier that I saw in a Vince Cully documentary on uh, MLB Network that ties in to admitting what you don't know to yourself, okay? And I understand there are a lot of things that I don't know, a lot of things that I'm still ignorant on, still have a, a murky understanding on, but it's getting clearer every single friggin' day. And the quote is having the humility to prepare and the confidence to pull it off. That's what makes someone able to excel. It's humility and confidence combined. I have that. 
What I do not have is confidence in you. I'm seeing more and more collectively the traits of Dennis Gurney. Unwilling, unable, it doesn't matter. The distinction doesn't matter whether you're unwilling or unable to help yourselves by looking deep inside, looking in the mirror, seeing the reflection, the ugly reflection. Instead of this concocted, beautiful princess that you imagine yourself to be. The manifestations of this delusion, this refusal to look at who and what we actually are as a collective species is manifesting itself all over the globe. And it's being exacerbated by this ability to constantly connect globally and put the id on some vulgar parade. To lose ourselves in fanaticism. Mutually exclusive cults of fanaticism. Joan Didion, I haven't gotten to this yet, I don't think, on the podcast. Oh, I will. She put out an essay back in, the, I think, 1964 called On Morality. I suggest you go look this up. D-I-D-I-O-N. Joan Didion On Morality. The last two paragraphs of that are gold. When it comes to an extremist test. When our morality becomes a moral imperative, when our beliefs become a moral imperative, we have become a fanatic. And we start compelling people to act and believe and behave how we should. We become the colonists on the eastern seaboard, ready to eradicate the savages because they're not living or believing or acting like we think they should. That's the moral justification for the invasive species to spread and annihilate anything in its path. I don't know that there is an answer to this question of mine. Why am I doing this? I'm trying to eliminate the performer's ego out of this. I've done a pretty good job. I've done an excellent job. There's no incoming praise here. I see the download numbers. That's it. That's all there is. So my motivations are as close to pure as I think I can get. I don't have any monetization. Thank God. So I don't have a financial interest in telling you what you want to hear. To bump my download numbers. And Matt pointed out, he's like, yeah, you're the last DJ. I think he's referring to the Tom Petty song. There goes the last DJ, says what he wants to say, plays what he wants to play. You can't turn him into a whore. Okay, I'll take that. And you're right, you're right, Matt. That's who I aspire to be. To tell you what I think, not what you want to hear. To tell you what I think, unattached to any personal vested interest, including validation or money. To keep the message as clean as possible without any other bullshit influences. And I had to get rid of Facebook. I had to get rid of, at least eliminate all the incoming signals from Facebook and Twitter to do that. So I can get your likes and your comments and everything else. I can, I, I can detach that from the product. 
But I still have not figured out the positive why. And not for the life of me. So this podcast, it's back for now. It feels good. But it's what I do. <laughs> it's what I did professionally for a long time. This microphone, it's like a part of my body. I got a lot of stuff. Did I tell you that? Did I mention that in this podcast? Yeah, I got a lot of stuff. What I think I'm going to do, I'm going to try to dig up that democratized opinion episode. I will try to boil it down, take all of the old current event stuff out of it. I think I'm going to repost that as a follow-up. I may do another one of those as well to kind of prep you for where I think I want this to go, should I continue to do it. We'll see. EscapingTheCave.com, that's my website. TodzillaX.com, that's the old travel material. There is technically a Facebook page there. You can send me a message on there if you want, whatever. There's Twitter. Fuck Twitter. I don't even know why I still have that fucking thing. Don't like it. I feel better. Thank you ever so much for clicking in. We'll talk to you next time. So long.